Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with Dr. Zed Chu and Ken Miller. I'm Bruce Barber. Dr. Chu is Deputy Director and Chief of Medical Oncology at Yale Cancer Center, and Dr. Miller is a medical oncologist specializing in pain and palliative care, and he also serves as the Director of the Connecticut Challenge Survivorship Clinic. If you'd like to join the discussion, you can contact the doctors directly. The address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and the phone number is one 888 234-4YCC. This evening, Ken Miller is joined by Dr. David LaFell, a professor of dermatology and surgery and deputy dean of Yale School of Medicine. He's also the CEO of Yale Medical Group and the author of Total Skin. Dr. LaFell is here to talk about the latest information on skin cancer prevention and melanoma. Let's um, talk a little bit about the, uh, the progress or, or lack of progress in the last decade in convincing people to use sun protection. What do you, what do you think? I think there's been progress. In a moment, I'll talk about some new data, brand new data, that suggests we're not making as much progress as we'd like. But I think overall, in the last decade, we've had a chance to convince people of one important fact, and that is that, generally speaking, the sun causes skin cancer. The scientific evidence that supports that has really mushroomed, and that has given physicians and other healthcare providers a hook to be able to educate listeners about the importance of protecting their skin against the harmful effects of the sun. So along those lines, um, you know, uh, tanning has become popular. Is that, uh, I mean, is that safe? Is it? Tanning uh, has been popular ever since it was popularized by Coco Chanel. Uh, it's a durable social statement and fashion statement. And it's especially concerning because it has captured uh, the imagination of our youth. The reality is that a tan is really the body's response to injury by ultraviolet radiation. In addition to the fact that there are now many mixed messages out there by different groups who have a vested interest in convincing people that tanning is actually healthy, we are dealing with a younger population, particularly of women, who go out of their way to get a tan using tanning parlors. Tanning parlors are so dangerous from a dermatologist's point of view that in many states they've been tightly regulated. Just this summer, new evidence uh, was published showing that the rates of malignant melanoma, the most serious form of skin cancer, are increasing in women born after 1990. A report came out showing an increase in melanoma in young women compared with young men. Uh, And this is consistent with what we as practicing dermatologists have been seeing. Although the reason for the increase of melanoma in young women is not known, I believe an important role has to be assigned to the use of tanning parlors and aggressive tanning in general. The fact that young people are spending more time in the sun has been demonstrated in several other studies published over the past couple of years. So I think on the one hand, uh, people are getting the message that uh, the sun uh, can cause uh, skin cancer and therefore proper sun protection is important. On the other hand, we're dealing with the age-old phenomenon seen in young people that they believe they're immortal. 
Uh, and because of that, they feel that they don't have to take the precautions that older, wiser, more mature people among us recognize is a good idea. Well, I have to say it's frightening that, that it's people that young, and that's something, something I didn't know and I think uh, important piece of information to get out there. What is then, so to look at the, the flip side, if there is one, uh, what's good about the sun? Is there an amount of sun exposure which is healthy and, and which, which is something that would be good for, good for people? Well, of course, there are many good things about the sun. It has uh, crept into our language, our music, our poetry, and there's a reason for it. Uh, we know that the sun makes us feel good, and we know, conversely, in the absence of sun, there's a phenomenon called seasonal affective disorder, which some of us in the Northeast may be uh, uh, at risk for. Having said that, everything in nature has its pluses and minuses. And so while the big plus of the sun is that we can't have life on Earth without it, it's the source of photosynthesis, the bad side is that when uh, we are immoderate with respect to our exposure to the sun, we do set up a cascade of events in our skin that can lead to skin cancer. Now, while the majority of skin cancers are easily treated, uh, we worry the most about the development of malignant melanoma, which does have the potential to uh, not only spread throughout the body once it develops in the skin, but lead to death as a result. All right. I want to ask you, there's been a lot in the, in the media recently about vitamin D, how we, we need vitamin D. It may reduce the amount of uh, breast cancer, reduce the, re the re risk of recurrence of breast cancer. So, I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is, that? is that a reason people should get more sun? The vitamin D story is actually one of the issues that I had been referring to earlier when I uh, commented on vested interests. For some in uh, reason, the tanning industry, uh, in other words, the people that market tanning booths, have been very aggressive about claiming that the ultraviolet radiation doesn't cause skin cancer, which, by the way, is scientifically incorrect. Uh, moreover, uh, they're making the claim that uh, people that use sunscreen, for example, are diminishing the amount of sun exposure they need to develop vitamin D. Now, it is quite true that vitamin D is actually a hormone and it is manufactured by the body when ultraviolet light hits the skin and converts cholesterol molecules that normally sit in your skin into precursor molecules that then turn into vitamin D. We've known for a long time, of course, that vitamin D is essential for bone health and many other aspects of metabolism. And recently there has been epidemiologic though not a laboratory data, to suggest that vitamin D levels may correlate with some of the things that you've mentioned relating to cancer. I should caution listeners that that information is far from validated and that the risk of developing skin cancer from excessive exposure to the sun far outweighs any theoretical risk related to vitamin D levels. And besides, you can boost vitamin D levels with oral supplementation. And uh, we've uh, supplemented milk for many, many years. In fact, going back, I think, to the uh, early to mid part of the last century, uh, when uh, school children were developing rickets, it became obvious that they were suffering from a vitamin D deficiency, and that's what led to milk supplementation. So I think that uh, the sun does stimulate vitamin D production in the skin. You really need uh, about uh, 
two 15-minute sessions uh, of uh, sun exposure, of exposing your arms or face or some relatively small part of your body to, to noonday sun. In fact, uh, one interesting observation is that a- an excess of sun exposure will actually break down hmm. vitamin D precursors in the skin. So like everything else in nature, uh, there's a balance. And the trick for individuals thinking about how they're going to develop a personal sun strategy is to figure out what their personal risk is for skin cancer and how they're going to protect themselves from a day on a day-to-day basis. Well, along those lines, I mean, how does uh, I mean, how does a person assess what their risk is as opposed to their neighbor? Well, first and foremost, you have to take a look in the mirror and see what kind of skin hair eye color you have. The people that are most at risk for developing melanoma are those with uh, fair skin. Um, blonde or, or red hair and light-colored eyes, green-gray eyes. Uh, these individuals uh, know uh, who you are because when you go out in the sun, you either burn or you burn and then tan. And this is an indication that your body lacks the pigmentation necessary to protect you from the harmful effects of the sun. Uh, after you look in the mirror and figure out what your so-called phenotype is, that's a word we use to describe what you look like, then uh, turn around and look at the family pictures on the wall and see uh, if you can identify through your family history whether there's a history of melanoma, because if you do have a family history of melanoma, that's another risk factor that you should pay attention to. Uh, if you had a, a blistering sunburn in childhood, that increases your risk of melanoma. So if you fall into any of these categories, you really do need to be especially vigilant about protecting yourself from the harmful effects of the sun. You know, along those lines, if, you can, if someone can look at themselves in the mirror, look at their fam- you know, go through the family history, if they identify themselves, let's look at two groups as high risk, what should be the, what would you recommend as a strategy? And if they identify themselves as low risk, what, what would you recommend as a strategy? I think that if an individual is identified as high risk for skin cancer and melanoma, they should make sure that they follow the following sun protection uh, strategies. Number one, wear a sunscreen uh, with a sun protection factor of 30 uh, that also offers protection against ultraviolet A waves. And those features of the sunscreen, which are present in most name brand products, will be clearly labeled, and you just have to look for that information. Number two, you want to wear a brimmed hat. So many of my patients wear baseball caps and then they come in with skin cancers on their ears and that really tells the story. You want to wear a brimmed hat and there was a time, at least for men, when uh, many of the hats were not especially dashing, shall we say. Uh, but now uh, there's so many great hats that you can get at sports, cl- sports uh, specialty clothing stores. Uh, less of an issue uh, for women because there's so many hat options. But you want to wear a brimmed hat. And you want to wear sun protective clothing. Here again, there are companies, you can find them on the web if you Google sun protective clothing, that make a wide range of clothing that can be very uh, attractive while blocking a lot of the harmful effects of the sun. You want to stay out of the sun during the peak hours, which are, you know, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. That doesn't mean that you have to go, you know, crawl under a rock or board up your windows, but what it does mean is that you should work or play in the shade and uh, during those hours. Uh, going for a walk late afternoon it can be as invigorating, maybe more so, as going for a walk at high noon. 
So let me ask you about clothing because I <clears throat> have to say my own sort of belief would be if I, you know, the areas that I have a shirt where I have my shirt or my pants on are not getting sun exposure. So is that true, false, or what? Well, it depends on the fabric. A, a white T-shirt, for example, which many may choose to run around in during the summer months or fall months, uh, just provides a sun protection factor of four. Mm. The sun protective factor uh, or component of a fabric depends on the tightness of the weave, the color of the fabric. So a dark T-shirt actually provides more protection. And I think it's especially uh, uh, attractive for children. Remember, 85% of lifetime sun exposure is acquired by age 18, we believe. So if you can protect your children from the harmful effects of the sun, even if you think you yourself are a lost cause at Mm -hmm, this point, mm -hmm. which I hope you're not, uh, you can buy sun protective clothing for your kids and help them minimize those initial genetic injuries caused by the sun that could set them up later in life for getting skin cancer. Yeah, I have to say, it reminds me, I mean, years ago, including my own lifetime, I mean, people used to put oil on to get a sunburn or to get a suntan, and now, thankfully, I mean, I think most of us or a lot of us are using sunblock. I think, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, there still is a lot of confusion uh, among my patients and others about what kind of sunscreen to buy. Uh, Needless to say, like everything else in the marketplace, there's a lot of advertising and a lot of claims. And that's why I like to keep it simple. Any sunscreen that that feels good on your skin with a sun protection factor of 30, that also provides UVA protection. The continuous spray products made by many different companies now are very effective, especially with kids who aren't especially eager to sit still while you smear them with cream. You can actually spray the sunscreen on as they run by. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Anyways, we would like to uh, to remind you, you can email questions to us at uh, canceranswers at yale.edu. Uh, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute, and then please stay tuned to learn more about information about melanoma and sun and sun exposure with Dr. David LaFell. Breast cancer is the second most common cancer in women. About 3,000 women in Connecticut will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and new therapies are providing more options for breast cancer patients, and more women are able to live with breast cancer than ever before. Beginning at age 40, every woman should schedule an annual mammogram, and you should start even sooner if you have a risk factor associated with breast cancer. Screening, early detection, and a healthy lifestyle are the most important factors in defeating breast cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as the Yale Cancer Center to make new treatments not yet approved by the Food and Drug Administration available to patients. This has been a Medical Minute, and you'll find more information at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to the WNPR Health Forum from Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Ken Miller, and I'm joined today by Dr. David LaFell, who's uh, author of the book uh, Total Skin and a a dermatologist here at the Yale Cancer Center, discussing the latest information on melanoma detection and treatment. We're also talking about the sun and sun exposure. David, let's. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about the sun, and then we want to talk about skin cancer. Can you tell, say a little bit about the different types of UV uh, ultraviolet rays? Sure, Ken. There, there are uh, three types of ultraviolet radiation that come from the sun, typically, that we think about. There are only two that we're concerned about, ultraviolet B rays and ultraviolet A rays. Ultraviolet B rays... Uh, are those that cause sunburn. And a good way to remember it, uh, the mnemonic, as we say, is ultraviolet B, B for burning. Ultraviolet A waves 
penetrate more deeply into the skin and are thought to be responsible in large part for the aging of the skin, premature wrinkling, uh, pigmentation spots, and that sort of thing. Uh, it is true, though, that ultraviolet A waves do play a role in causing cancer, though they're probably not as problematic from that point of view as the ultraviolet B rays. Well, let's talk about melanoma. I mean, what... How, how common is it? How many, uh, how many patients each year are developing melanoma? Uh, melanoma is uh, increasingly uh, common. Fortunately, the death rate from melanoma is going down, and what that suggests is that we're diagnosing it earlier. Uh, typically, about 8,000 people a year die from melanoma, so it certainly is not one of the more common causes of death. The important point is that unlike other cancers, which may be hard to diagnose, melanoma, for the most part, originates on the skin where it can be identified early at its most curable stage. And what should uh, lead a person to go to the doctor? I mean, what, what kind of uh, uh, things might they see on their skin that should be of concern? I think that individuals should, number one, have a full-body skin examination with a dermatologist or other individual properly trained in doing a skin exam, and, and that should happen once a year. But you yourself should learn how to examine your body and be alert to any moles that come up or any spots. And the typical things we advise is any sore that bleeds and doesn't uh, uh, go away or heals up and then comes back uh, could be a, any form of skin cancer. But when it comes to melanoma, we're specifically concerned about moles uh, or spots that grow in size that are asymmetrical. In other words, if you folded them over in your mind's eyes, the sides wouldn't match. If they have irregular pigmentation, you know, most moles are an even tan or brown color, but melanomas tend to have a variety of colors in them or can have a variety of colors in them because they actually reflect the biological processes going on in the skin as the body is trying to fend off that cancer from developing. And moles that have irregular edges or sharp angles. Uh, basically, any mole that looks odd or funky. And I've just described the classic signs of melanoma. You typically don't want to wait until your lesion or your spot is ulcerated or bleeding because that's a more advanced stage of melanoma. You want to get it at the first sign that it's abnormal. And for that reason, I've been impressed over the past 20 years how well patients can identify lesions themselves. It's really quite remarkable. People with no special knowledge or background in medicine will come in for a full-body skin examination, and uh, I'll go through it, and I won't identify anything that's of concern to me. But the patient will say, Doc, what about this thing here? And I'll look at it, and again, it's not especially concerning. And I'll say, well, what don't you like about it? I don't know. I, I don't know. I just, I just don't like it. Well, what we train our residents at Yale is that happens, that lesion comes off. Mm. If a patient doesn't like a spot, even though the majority of the time it's benign, it comes off because there have been enough occasions in my experience where patient-identified lesions that otherwise looked like nothing proved to be problematic. And so it emphasizes the point that the doctor needs to listen to the patient, but that can only happen if you, the patient, speak up.
Well, you know, so it's a, it's actually a good lesson probably for all parts of medicine that that if people feel that something's not right with their body, it's important to tell the doctor and uh, and to really uh, ask in general that, that that it be looked into further, but especially in the case of skin cancer. Uh, there was an uh, article in the paper several years ago about about dogs that were trained to identify skin cancer. Is there any, any is that truth or myth? Well, I, I haven't seen follow-up scientific studies. My guess is that uh, because dogs have such a strong sense of smell, they may have been keying in to the smell of blood. You know, tumors have an increased blood flow. If they were ulcerating and bleeding, that then becomes a unique uh, spot on the person's body that the dog might hone into. But I probably would not rely on the canine approach to diagnosis, and much better for you to learn your own body. And if you see a mole that bothers you, that's new, that you haven't seen before, that has changed, that is in any way worrisome, pick up the phone, call your dermatologist, and if they can't get you in uh, soon enough, you know, ask for a reference to another one, uh, at least to have that spot evaluated. All right. So if we, if we put the canine approach aside, which is probably a good idea, but how, how do you make the diagnosis of, of a melanoma? What, how? Well, the, the, it starts with the examination that I've described. And if I see a mole that's of concern that just doesn't fit into the right pattern uh, for a normal mole, then uh, I discuss with the patient what my concern is and recommend a biopsy. And a biopsy, at least the way we do it at the Yale Cancer Center, is a very simple procedure. We simply numb up uh, the area with a little uh, injection of anesthetic. That takes literally just a few seconds. And then with a blade, we simply shave across the undersurface of the lesion to ensure that we got it all and send it off to the pathologist. The whole procedure takes just a couple of minutes, and it allows us to evaluate the lesion. In cases where there's a very large spot that can't be biopsied in that fashion, we might take uh, a little punch uh, biopsy, like a little cookie cutter, and take a small sample of a larger area. Many years ago, there, there was concern as there was for many types of cancers, that if you cut into it, you can spread it. Mm -hmm. But there really uh, is not evidence that that's the case. And most of the time when you, quote, biopsy a melanoma, at least uh, in the approach that that we do and the approach we train our, our residents and fellows in, the biopsy itself removes the lesion. And if it is a melanoma, in an early stage melanoma, one simply has to go back and perform some definitive skin surgery. When the pathologist looks at that sample, what, what are some of the features that, that they're looking for that, that then help guide what, what happens next for the patient? Well, they're looking, uh, first of all, to make the diagnosis of melanoma to see the abnormal pigment cells because melanoma is a cancer of the pigment cells. But the single most important thing that pathologists look to identify is the depth or the thickness of the melanoma because there's a huge amount of data which suggests that the thickness of the melanoma is directly related to the prognosis to how well you'll do. So the vast majority of early melanomas you know, are up to one millimeter in depth and they have probably a better than 96% cure rate with simple office surgery. The uh, melanomas that go deeper than that, of course, can be more problematic, uh, but by and large, patients do well with proper treatment. The fact that there's a relationship between the uh, depth of the melanoma, how long it's been there in many cases, and the prognosis for the patient highlights the importance of early diagnosis and treatment. Now, after they've, uh, patients had a biopsy and you've established the diagnosis, what happens next? Well, if it's an early-stage melanoma, 
then an individual simply has to have a re-excision uh, with typically one centimeter margins or a third of an inch uh, all around uh, the, the growth. Um, However, if it's a more advanced melanoma, there's a procedure that's commonly done now by uh, surgical oncologists specially trained in the procedure called sentinel lymph node mapping. And in this procedure, it allows the surgeon to evaluate the lymph node chain to which the particular melanoma might be draining. When that's done, you can sample the lead lymph node or the sentinel lymph node. And if there's no cancer in it, then you know you don't have to take any more uh, uh, lymph nodes, and you also have some information about, additional information about prognosis. If there's already melanoma in that sentinel lymph node, then there's a decision made to remove the lymph nodes and, and consider what kind of chemotherapy or other treatment might be indicated. Now you're um, very, very well known for Mohs surgery, and let me just spell that for the uh, for people listening is M-O-H-S, Mohs surgery. Um, and one of the email questions that, that we received was about that, and a woman saying, you know, I've heard of Mohs surgery. Is that something that would be useful for, uh, for my husband who was just diagnosed with melanoma? So that's a great question. Mohs surgery is an office-based technique for removing non-melanoma skin cancer, basal cell cancer and squamous cell cancer. And the reason it works so well there is because success in removing those cancers depends on removing all the cancer cells and as little normal tissue as possible. The procedure is done in the office by specially trained dermatologists, and one is able to go ahead and do plastic reconstruction if necessary at the same time. However... Cure, treatment and cure of melanoma depends on taking that margin of safety I talked about. So there's really no advantage to doing uh, the Mohs procedure. There is a form of melanoma, which I think is increasing, that we didn't mention, and that's called melanoma in situ. And this is actually the least serious form of melanoma because it's non-invasive. It remains confined to the epidermis or the top layer of the skin. And this is also removed surgically in the office, but sometimes the edges are hard to see and you have to go back a second time. Even for that, we don't use the Mohs technique because it's my opinion that the frozen section analysis that we use with the Mohs technique, in other words, looking at the tissue right away after it's been frozen and stained, isn't as reliable as the permanent section method where we actually embed the tissue in paraffin. Dave, I want to ask you some uh, uh, just some short questions, truth or myth. Um, and these are based on, uh, you know, things that I've heard people ask and talk about. Uh, truth or myth, uh, uh, melanomas are always black. Myth. Uh, melanomas can sometimes be variegated. Horticulturalists among the listeners would know that word for sure. They can have varying coloration. Uh, in addition, there's an especially challenging type of melanoma called amelanotic melanoma. In very fair individuals, melanoma can develop that has no pigmentation and doesn't look like anything special at all. And dermatologists are always on the lookout for that. And, and I find the patient's own sense of whether there's something wrong can often be a good cue in that situation. All right. Truth or myth? Uh, melanoma uh, only develops in, uh, in sun-exposed areas. Myth. Uh, the reason for doing a full-body skin examination is because melanoma can occur where the sun doesn't shine. And I think all dermatologists have seen melanomas in the groin area and in other sun-protected areas, not to mention the palms and soles. Uh, the uh, 
fact is that a certain percentage of melanomas are not related to the sun. They're re the result of a genetic or familial tendency and will develop whether or not they're sun exposure. Right, and finally, uh, African-Americans uh, can develop melanoma. Absolutely. And uh, people with dark skin tend to develop the melanoma on the palms or soles or in the nails. And that's why uh, careful examination of those areas is so critical. Let me ask you a little bit about multidisciplinary care for, for people who've had melanoma. You know, if someone has, let's say, had the initial surgery, they've had a wider excision, and you do find a lymph node involved, um, you know, what, what progress has been made in that, in that situation? Well, I think there's been a great deal of progress, but it all begins with the multidisciplinary approach that you're referring to. So for the earliest stage melanoma that's easily treated in the doctor's office, it's important to have regular follow-up and, and regular exams. But for the more advanced melanomas, a presentation to a multidisciplinary melanoma panel is important. At Yale, at the Cancer Center, we've had a melanoma panel chaired by Dr. Stephen Arian that uh, goes back many, many years. And it's an opportunity to bring together a variety of specialists who can review a patient's case and make recommendations about further treatment, uh, further studies that might be helpful, and how to best manage uh, that particular case. And it sounds like uh, there's, a, there's a number of efforts being made at Yale and elsewhere to really uh, harness the, the power of the immune system. You know, it's interesting. Melanoma is one of the cancers, one of the few cancers probably, that's directly impacted by the immune system. I could go on for hours talking about it, but all I'll tell you is that when I talked before about irregular pigmentation, one of those colorations you see in a melanoma uh, is white, sometimes even red. And that is a sign of regression of the melanoma being auto-digested by the body's immune system. For some reason, melanoma is very susceptible to immune function. And uh, immunobiologists at Yale and elsewhere working with people in the Yale Cancer Center are trying to figure out what the best approach is. So it's not uncommon to read about a new vaccine for melanoma in which individuals are trying to harness the body's native or natural immune system to fight off melanoma, either by developing a vaccine to a protein of the melanoma or the patient's own melanoma cells. Uh, which is exciting. So I think actually we learned a lot today about uh, 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 about diagnosis, about risk factors. Um, I want to encourage people. It, it's uh, you know we're starting the fall season, but but it's still important to wear sunblock. David, is that true? It is true. Uh, it, the the sun continues to shine, and the best approach to sun protection is to make a daily habit of it, and that way you won't even have to think about it. I want to thank Dr. David LaFell for joining us on Yale Cancer Center Answers. Uh, until next week, this is Dr. Ken Miller from the Yale Cancer Center wishing you a safe and healthy week. If you have questions, comments, or would like to subscribe to our podcast, go to YaleCancerCenter.org, where you'll also find transcripts of past broadcasts in written form. Next week, we'll examine the latest information on ovarian cancer. I'm Bruce Barber, and you're listening to the WNPR Health Forum from Connecticut Public Radio.